Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, November 30th, 2020. On the show today, news and listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim finishes the history of Disney's Port Orleans and Dixie Landings resorts and how certain Imagineers tried to steer the company away from using Song of the South as the inspiration for Splash Mountain. Let's get started by bringing in the man who threw a boomerang when he was a child. It never came back, and now he lives in constant fear. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Len, you understand that a boomerang that you throw that doesn't come back is technically a stick. A stick, exactly. <laughs> so, yes, I am frightened of a stick. I don't want to talk about it, all right? It's, it's you know, <laughs> great childhood scarring event. And <laughs> I'm sorry to bring it up. I know you've been going through therapy a lot for that. There we go. Jim, let's do a quick shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Connor Pinks, Fred in Belgium. Hello, Fred. And Wayne B. And longtime subscribers, Mindy W., Rich G., and Emily K. Jim, these folks are all past winners of the Balderdash Cup competition, the annual award given to Adventurer of the Year at Disney's Adventurers Club. In fact, the giant statue of Zeus with a fishing rod circulates among their homes each year, arriving just before Christmas, so it can be festively decorated. True story. I miss the Adventures Club. <laughs> I know we'll be talking about Joe Rody later in the show, but that's why I did it. Yep. There we go. Okay. So. All right. All right. Let's do the uh, the news then, Jim. Folks, mm-hmm. the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Did you notice I added the little, the little pause for suspense right there? There we go. It keeps Oof. people engaged. Keeps people engaged. <laughs> All right, Jim, you mentioned the big news of last week. Joe Rohde, mm-hmm. the legendary uh, Imagineer for Walt Disney, announced his retirement this coming January 4th, mm-hmm. 2021. I think we've mentioned Joe's work on here many times. We are all huge fans, but just to sum up his career, uh, we'll probably have to do an entire show on this. We should do a Joe Rohde show. I agree. I agree. Uh, but he was the, one of the second generation of uh, theme park Imagineers. He started in Epcot doing painting for the uh, Mexico Pavilion. He also worked on the Captain EO 3D film in the Norway Pavilion before doing the Adventurers Club at Pleasure Island. And I guess this was the first thing I really knew. Like the Adventurers Club was one of those things that after Epcot, you know, outside of a theme park, was one of those things that really, to me, screamed Disney-level theming, even though it was in Pleasure Island. I mean, Pleasure Island had a bunch of clubs, but the Adventurers Club was the most Disney thing in Pleasure Island. Oh, absolutely. And I still remember the night that my ex-wife, Michelle, and I were there with Alice. Alice was just about three or four months old at that point, and we had brought her by because we were friendly with the cast of the Adventurers Club, and they wanted to see Alice. And Mm -hmm. as we're there in the little alcove at the bottom of the stairs, who comes down the stairs but Joe Rohde literally pointing out, like, okay, I got that piece at a swap meet, and I got that's from my own (laughs) personal collection. And that Stole that in Peru. I mean, I mean, I got that in Peru. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the great part was Joe came down the stairs, saw Alice, and evidently his, his own son, was the same age, and he just basically grabbed Alice and took her with him through the rest of the tour of the the, the club. And it was just sort of like, you know, yes, I have my baby associate with me, and let me show what the rest of the artifacts. <laughs> but exactly. uh, he was a great guy. It still is. Yeah, so. It still is. It still is. Mm-hmm. And I think we. I've. 
Uh, I've met Joe for the first time like 17 times in a row. Like every time I, <laughs> I meet him, I have yes. to reintroduce myself. And it's But the uh, my Joe Rody moment, we'll talk about another show, was doing mm. the uh, Wild Africa Trek oh, at Animal okay. Kingdom the day it opened. He was there for mm. that. Among his other things, Awani uh, mm-hmm. in Hawaii, which is Disney's best resort by a wide mm. margin. Um, okay. Obviously, the crowning achievement of his career mm. is Disney's Animal Kingdom, which opened in 1998. It's hard to overstate his impact on mm-hmm. the animal kingdom pretty much everywhere you go is basically joe Rody's head <laughs> yeah it's a yeah. Uh, it's interesting because there's a uh there's a there's a we're on the what, what now the third generation which is the third or fourth generation of, of i Disney would actually say we we are now in our fourth generation i can remember one of the last things that joe worked on was guardians of the galaxy mission breakout and right. joe always kept moving forward, always keeps moving forward. And Mm -hmm. he was talking about how when it came to, for example, the lobby admission breakout, that, you know, remember how Disneyland, the original Disneyland, had been set up with a filmmaker's language. You had long shots, you had close-ups, that sort of thing. And Joe was talking about with Mission Breakout that this was the first attraction that they designed from a gamer's style of storytelling, as in... Oh, interesting. 360 storytelling. So there were, you know, items ab- above you, behind you, beside you. So you would discover them that way. And I just love the fact that here was this guy, a contemporary of mine in his 60s, but it was thinking you know, it's still, it's like, okay, we got to do, do these attractions for the next generation. And that's gamers and, you know, families that game together. So he never, never rested on his laurels, so to speak. That's fantastic. So who's mm-hmm. left from, uh, which Imagineers are left that on Epcot that are still with the company. Kevin Rafferty supposedly retired last year. Remember, he he published his memoirs, my, my Magic Journey, My 40 Years at Imagineering. Tony Baxter went into semi-retirement back in February 2013. My understanding yeah. is he still comes into Imagineering once a week and it's still, it's kind of the Mark Davis deal. He's consulting, but you know, not yeah. necessarily their day-to-day. Tom Fitzgerald, this year, his 40, 41st year with the company, still there. And and Scott Trowbridge, just this, earlier this month, would uh, received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Thea. So oh, you uh, still got some of the Epcot vets in there. But obviously, again, we're facing kind of an interesting time when it comes to Epcot. That's true. It's a good point. Mm. Yep. Uh, in other news, Jim, park hopping returns to Walt Disney World January 1st. Uh, you won't need a reservation to hop to subsequent parks. The one thing of note is that if you hop to the studios, you won't be able to get a boarding group for Rise of the Resistance uh, because it requires a park reservation in the system mm-hmm. to be eligible for uh, for that. So you and I talked about this on a show a couple of weeks ago. We had heard, we had heard from someone in the park reservations group mm-hmm. that they were working on this. It looks like they figured out what needed to be done, so that's good. Not a coincidence that they're rolling it out in January. In theory, the holiday crowds go away, and it's like, okay, so we have a little breathing space, and let's see if we can actually make this work. So. And to your point, it helps out with the, let's go to uh, have dinner in Epcot. Plan, uh, absolutely. Right? So, yeah. No, yeah. no, totally, totally, totally part of the plan. The uh, other big news, and I think this is, in terms of favorite news for the week, it's this. The mm-hmm. walkway between the Grand Floridian and the Magic Kingdom has now opened the gym. And you've been following this project very closely for months now. So since the day the Grand Floridian opened, mm-hmm. my big question has been, when can I walk to the Magic Kingdom? It's mm-hmm. literally the thing I think about every single time I stay there. Like I should be able to walk to the Magic Kingdom. And now, Jim, that is a reality. Our buddy BioReconstruct, I think, was there the moment the barrier. <laughs> he was- timed it all. He sent us the timing. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Like, want to give them credit to the effect of, in theory, you can walk from the Magic Kingdom all the way to the ticket and to transportation. Yeah. yeah, but the challenge then gets when you get in the weeds at the Polynesian Village, because they're really going to have to figure out some signage to get signage, people. exactly it, yeah. Yeah. So that was the other thing. So Bio apparently walked, I think mm. his first walk was Grand Floridian to Magic Kingdom to time it. And then he went back and he timed it from different parts of the poly to the Magic Kingdom. And then he went back again and said, okay, TTC to the Magic Kingdom. And apparently he got lost somewhere in the poly, which whom among us has not oh, got lost walking go. from the TTC to the Great Ceremonial House, right? Mm. I mean, I think uh, Bio Reconstruct's point was, you know, at night, this might, this might actually be a challenge. But at the same time, I think is a nod to your sort of dual citizenship. I love the little reference. It's like, well, if you're a New York walker, it's 13 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it is. We walked fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 12 to 20 minutes, depending on uh, per mile, depending on how, they, how you walk. If you do a, a New Hampshire saunter, it's two weeks. <laughs> I'm excited to see it, it uh, open. And remember, Jim, you and I did, did a show last year mm-hmm. where we talked about how the Disney Corporation has an internal carbon tax that it levies on different business units, depending on how green or how much mm-hmm. uh, how much carbon their initiatives produce. And in this case, this is an example of the Walt Disney World, the Parks and Resorts Division, getting a carbon credit because presumably when the walkway opens, it'll mean uh, less reliance on the oh, monorail, on boats, and very on true. buses. Yeah, oh. so this is one of those things where you get a little carbon credit for doing it. In theory, one can walk from the International Gateway at Epcot all the way over to the studios. I wonder Mm -hmm. if, same situation, if if that was factored into the carbon footprint of the resort. I'm thinking if you, now that I want to do it, I want to to connect all the resorts by a sidewalk. So Mm -hmm. could you go TTC to Wilderness Lodge? Mm. Because if you can go TTC to Wilderness Lodge, you can go Wilderness Lodge to Fort Wilderness. Well, now you and I have walked from Fort Wilderness all the way into the campground. In fact, right. you know, I remember we actually recorded that and decided that you know, at one point it was, okay, this is where Buffalo Junction was going to be built and that yep. sort of thing. So you can do it from Fort Wilderness to the campground. I don't think you can do it yet from the TTC to Fort Wilderness without... Yeah, the, other, the other thing you could do, you could go contemporary to Wilderness Lodge to Fort Wilderness if there, if there was a trail. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Leave it to us. We can't celebrate this thing that took years to get done. We're immediately, well, what about the other? You know, how about there? How, you know, it's just like, you know. You know, if you get to Golden Oak, you can get to Riverside, uh, to Port Orleans. <laughs> there we go. The poor slob who took years of begging and pleading to finally get this walkway completed. And we can't give him 30 seconds of, wow, great achievement. It's like, okay, what uh, about the fantastic. other ones? It, it so. is really, really good. My, uh, my goal is Animal Kingdom and Magic Kingdom. By walking. All right. That would be cool. Um, speaking of uh, updates, Jim, uh, last week, Disney updated the status of several Epcot projects. So mm-hmm. we know that Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Rewind vehicle testing is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disney came out and said that the water screen platforms for Harmonious will be used during the day as fountains in World Showcase Lagoon. The Festival Center is now a festival area. Well, this is where it gets, starts to get kind of nebulous. So what's so the festival center itself, the three-story structure, that's dead, yeah. right? For now. Part of the reason it's off the table for now is that we are barreling down on the official start of the new version of the 50th anniversary, which will now start in October of 2021. 
And this was supposed to be in place. So if you're a corporate group or you're a wedding party or that sort of thing, you could book out the third floor for your private party, for your private function. But again, if it's the 50th anniversary, we need this space open to move tens of thousands of guests. Because again, we're going to have a vaccine by then, right? And people will have taken it and we're no longer limited to 35% of capacity or, or that right. sort of thing. So it's getting to the notion of, look, we need this space open because tens of thousands of people have to move back and forth through it, making their way to Harmonious and then leaving the park. I'm told that that's five years down the line, yeah. we could have a conversation, but you know, for right now, it's all about recovery. It's all trying to get the resort back to normalcy, to the previous capacity, and then maybe doing some cool stuff in the future. And that makes sense. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. expecting, uh, instead of Festival Center, I'm expecting basically a lawn with uh, with festival tents and stuff like that. Yep. Maybe some shaded seating, some outdoor seating, some shade. And food carts. Don't forget about food carts. Some more outdoor kitchens, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so. that's what I'm expecting. Yeah, mm -hmm. fair enough. Uh, there was nothing in the announcement about the play pavilion that's replacing Wonders of Life. Yeah. <laughs> and I got to tell you from the Imagineers who were working on that, they weren't entirely happy. Because remember, I don't know if you've seen the history of Disney monorail book that came out earlier this fall that they actually mentioned the monorail themed attraction that's supposed to be in that building. That's that's It's a turnkey land. It's ready to go. And it just sort of like... Right now, it is all about getting this park ready for the 50th. And they did their market survey work, and it's just like, from a guest interest point of view, Ratatouille is a priority, Guardians is a priority, and but the thing is, because the Play Pavilion is really so amorphous, nobody knows what's in it, so it's like, it's not really a priority you know, for guests right now, so it's like, all right, that can wait. So that's been mothballed before all of the other stuff gets done. I am told on the other side of Cosmic Rewind that it will become a priority again. Right, because the Cosmic Rewind is going to draw crowds to that part of the park. That's it, exactly. That's okay, it, exactly. They will need the additional capacity on that side. So it's like, as Cosmic Rewind is getting ready to open, you will see more money, more time, more effort poured into the Play Pavilion. And they, they hope to have it open in three to six months after Cosmic Rewind. Huh, that's a, that's an aggressive schedule. So I, I thought that they would do... I mean, and maybe they could do this all at once, but Cosmic Rewind, they've got to get Food and Bev mm -hmm. fixed in uh, Future World West, you know, that area. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the, the plate pavilion. So my sense is it would be, I mean, if I had, if I was doing the schedule, mm -hmm. Food and Bev would either open right before, with, or right after Cosmic Rewind, and then the plate pavilion. When we're talking Food and Bev, we're talking about the stuff that's in the old Comunicore area, correct? Right, uh, yeah. So whatever is replacing Electric Umbrella, Mouse Gear will probably go back, but you know, mm -hmm. the Starbucks has to come back, things like that, right? They've got to they gotta figure that out. Now, again, because we have a vaccine looming, Space 220 was having to deal with the issues of every indoor restaurant in the world right now in mm -hmm. regard to social distancing or physical distancing. And so the notion is like, ooh, okay, so this problem might be solved by the time, you know, so that again has picked up some some speed and some heat. So I honestly expect Space 220. They do definitely want to have that up and running for October of next year for the 50th. Okay. They want to announce no later than summer of 2021 that they can begin taking reservations. Oh, so. good. Well, that'll be good. That'll be good to say. Mm-hmm. 
Speaking of a uh, space, uh, anything on the Spaceship Earth redo? That's kind of gone quiet as well. And there's a reason, Len. <laughs> you know, it's just like... In, in terms of money, we have no money. <laughs> That's exactly. The, the $900 million worth of capital investment that yeah. got paused. The thing with Spaceship Earth is it wasn't broken. They were just looking to plus it. They were just looking yeah. to finesse the story for the next generation. I mean, this wasn't going to be a massive revamp redo. It was changing it to highlighting storytelling. So you change your narration, you change a few show scenes. In this situation, it's like, you know, you don't have to fix when ain't broke. Yeah. So four and five years down the line, we'll talk. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. All right, Jim, let's uh, go and do listener questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple. The first one is from Kimmy R. What are you thinking early May will look like next year? We'll have a one-year-old and are pregnant. Which resort would you recommend for fun, but not too much running around? I'd think the Magic Kingdom. I'm leaning towards the contemporary. but My husband wants the Grand Floridian. Uh, but if it's going to be insane, we may just try to go earlier. P.S. I don't know what Jim looks like, but I think he should be the prospector from Toy Story <laughs> for next Halloween. Just a thought. Uh, that is exactly what Jim looks like. Just this week, Sharon, uh, the mom at Hoodlum House, uh, actually reached <laughs> reached out to say that on the, the most recent episode of The Mandalorian, uh, The Siege, there was a character, Captain Carson Tiva, X-Wing pilot that she thought I looked like. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen the episode. Yeah, it's actually not. <laughs> I'm just grateful she didn't say Porkins. But yeah, I, I could cop to looking like Stinky Pete from Toy Story 2. In fact, oh, you know, the name is probably entirely too appropriate. And maybe that's oversharing. So, all right, back to, to, you know, to Kimmy's, Kimmy's question. question. Yeah. All right. So I, I do like both of those uh, ideas, the contemporary and the Grand Floridian. Uh, and mm-hmm. the reason is convenience. When, um, when we took Hannah... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, our daughter for the first time to Walt Disney World, we stayed at the Grand Floridian, not because, you know, we wanted anything fancy, but because it was uh, one of the most convenient hotels if you needed mm-hmm. to go back for a quick nap, right? And the nap was more for me than anyone else, but whatever, let's, we'll gloss over that fact. Okay. Yeah. So I think the Grand Floridian is good. The Contemporary, um, both of those are now walking distance um, to the parks. Uh, they have really good dining, like the Grand Floridian, I would think in May, more restaurants will be open. That would be my choice. The other one, um, if you're going to spend any time at all in Animal Kingdom, my other choice would be Animal Kingdom Lodge Jumbo House, again, for the dining. Mm-hmm. Problem with Animal Kingdom, A, it may not be open. Animal Kingdom Lodge might not be open, and B, the restaurants might not be open. True. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, Contemporary Grand Floridian. Mm-hmm. If you really liked Hollywood Studios and Epcot, I would pick Beach Club there. So those are my choices. But, you know, yeah, I think if you can get a good rate at the Contemporary of the Grand Floridian, those would be my two my, my two first choices. I could back that up. All right. Next question is from Thomas. Mm-hmm. He says, during your most recent Disney Dish podcast, I was amazed that your rapier wit glossed over the meta nature of elaborate Disney convention hotel portfolios that were produced and handed out to attendees at conventions that are held to highlight venues for people choosing where to hold other conventions. It reminds me of that scene in Austin Powers where Robert Wagner shows Dr. Evil a model of his U.S. holdings that included a a miniature model of his factory that produced miniature models of factories. That is beautiful. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. I listened uh, for both you and uh, your and Jim's intelligent analysis of business decisions by the Walt Disney Corporation and the dry wit that relishes in the sometimes hidden absurdity of those decisions. As an aside, I've enjoyed the audio-only walk-arounds of the parks, but the ones with your commentary are gold. When you add Laurel's dry wit acting in synergy with yours during walk-arounds, it's priceless. 
I'm holding out hope for a Disney Dish Bandcamp exclusive show that's simply audio of Lennon Laurel at the Testa Family Thanksgiving dinner. If that doesn't happen in 2020, you can give the exact same excuse that Disney's provided all year. Out of an abundance of caution, we have decided not to wiretap our family this Schmer's Day. <laughs> Best wishes and a happy and safe holiday season to you and your family. Yeah, so, hmm. you know, the, the other question that comes out, and I've, I'm often asked this when I'm in the parks, hmm. and the question goes something like this. What's it like to be the fourth most popular person on your two-man show? When, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, in general, it's not bad. You know? I try not to think of it exactly that way, but, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely fine with it, right? No, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, I think you and I have both got, you know, sort of settled into the, the, the hard truth of our lives that, you know, when it comes to the brains of the operation, you and I automatically default to either Laurel and Nancy. You know, yeah. just sort of like, hang on, I get, let me check with Nancy to find out what my opinion is. For me, it was, it, you know, I woke up one day and I realized I am neither the prettiest, funniest, or smartest person in this relationship, and I'm okay with it. You know, like I, you know, I can, I can lift really heavy things, and that's that, that's what I bring here, and that's you know, that's that's great. In my own case, really, it's Nancy, and then it's the two cats, and and again, I'm the one who scoops the poop. So clearly, we we know, you know, where I am in the batting order. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're somewhere on the podium, right? Top three, you know. maybe a participation medal. That's that's good. There we go. You know, he <laughs> tried. So he tried, gave his best. He really there did. We could. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about how the retheming of Dixie Landings might indicate how Disney's going to update and Splash Mountain. We'll be right back. Jim, when we left off talking about Dixie Landings and Splash Mountain, we were we had just opened Phase 1 and Phase 2 mm-hmm. of the resort, right? Yeah. What's interesting about uh, Port Orleans and Dixie Landings is in this same window of time is when the original DVC was built, now Old Key West. Oh, right. Yeah. So we had this kind of mega resort that paid tribute to the South. We had an area that paid tribute to the, the very tip of Florida and Old Key West. We had Louisiana's Urban Center with Port Orleans. Uh, we had the bayous of southern Louisiana with Alligator Bayou, uh, that section of Dixie Landings, and finally the Grand Manor Houses of Georgia in the Magnolia Bend. If you factor in the number of visitors who go to Walt Disney World who live east of the Mississippi, or for that matter, the number of folks who live south of the Mason-Dixon line who come to the resort every three and a half years or so, it made sense to have an area in the park that really sort of made Southerners comfortable, paid tribute to their world. However, if you talk with the folks at Central Reservation Office, uh, which I want to say that name has changed over the years, Len. Now it's what, Reservation Assistance or the Help Center? Does that sound right? Uh, Yeah, it's it's Assistance now. Okay. All right. Okay. So the folks over at Central Reservation Office, they began to talk about after Dixie Landings opened in 92 or thereabouts, they'd get an African-American person on the phone who would be looking to come to Walt Disney World, and they'd launch into this spiel, and they'd find their price point, and they'd make a suggestion about Dixie Landings, and it was not a no, but it was an oh, hell no. (laughs) It was just one of these things where it's like, okay, you know, we maybe need to finesse our spiel because of this. And, And remember, in the same window of time, we're heading into the you know middle 90s, and 
Suddenly we have Disney's The Lion King, you know, which makes buku bucks. And this is a fil film animator teacher that celebrates African culture and, right. you know, has a, a strong African-American vocal cast. And just three years later, The Lion King opens on Broadway in November of 97. And Julie Tamer really leans into African-American heritage and really makes the show a celebration. And here's this torrent of money that is pouring into the Walt Disney Company for a celebration of African-American culture. And the question was like, okay, maybe this Dixie Landings thing is, is something we should perhaps take a look at. And yep. and Disney in the past has taken the concerns of its African-American guests into uh, account. In fact, Len, I think we've talked previously in the show, there used to be this vignette in It's a Small World. If you go to YouTube right now and, and tee up the special that Disney put on on the Wonderful World of Color back in May of 1964, their show Disney Goes to the Fair, at approximately the 30-minute mark in this show, you can see it's a Mark Davis-designed vignette. It's a quartet of little black tribesmen uh, in the African section of the attraction, and they're all standing around this laughing hyena. And the thing is, the little boys find the African hyena so amusing that they're giggling along with it. And so this was in the version of the ride for the 1964-1965 World's Fair. When the attraction moved to Disneyland in May of 66, it's still in there. It also gets put in the clones that are built for uh, the Magic Kingdom, October of 71, and even in Tokyo's version of A Small World, which opens in April of 83. But it's the mid-80s that Disney gets this note from a rather irate African-American woman who just says that she was offended as she was on Small World to see little African boys in such pro close proximity to a hyena, which, according to this woman, was, you know, would never happen in real life because yeah. hyenas are filthy, vicious creatures, which, okay, so if you, you watch The Lion King and you got Shenze, Banzai, and Ed, okay, I get how you could think that. Whereas anybody who's actually watched the magic of Disney uh, Animal Kingdom over at Disney+, Plus. And those that Scooter and Zawadi, the two hyenas who live at that theme park, they may not be the best smelling animals, but according to their, their caretakers, they're, they're very sweet, highly intelligent creatures. Anyway, back to this concerned African-American mom and her irate letter, which Disney back in the 80s took very seriously, so much that Disney actually goes into It's a Small World and restages this Mark Davis designed vignette. So rather than having a quartet of, of young tranksmen giggling along with a hyena in the African section, it's now just a pair of hyenas laughing together by themselves. So the four little black boys who were previously there are removed entirely. And to Disney's credit, they didn't just change it in the Disneyland version. They did it at Disney World. They did it at Tokyo. And in fact, they reached out to the team that was working at that time on the Euro Disney version of Small World and made sure that the young tribesmen laughing with the hyenas scene got cut there. But that said, it's important to stress here, there's kind of a generational thing going on here that the older Disney execs and imaginators didn't necessarily view this situation with the same urgency as, say, the younger staffers did. And when I say that, I honestly mean no disrespect to Dick Nunes, who worked for the Disney company for 44 years and accomplished many great things during his tenure during the Mouse House. But it's honestly, Len, not a mm -hmm. coincidence that when Dick retired as chairman 
of Walt Disney Attractions in May of 1999. It was only then that the Let's Rebrand Disney's Dixie Landing Resort effort really began to pick up steam. Which is perfectly understandable. Remember from the previous installments of the series, it was Dick himself who proposed the Lake Buena Vista New Orleans Square project that in right. turn led to Dixie Landings. And and supposedly Dick, when they, they brought it to him, and it's like, this isn't a thing. Why would we change this? But that's it. In 1999, Len, the black population in the United States numbered 35 million people. That's 12.8% of the total population. And when you have a resort that has 2,048 rooms, which remember, we're talking about Dixie Landings with Alligator Bayou and Magnolia Bend, and the name alone of your resort is what upsets an eighth of the, the total U.S. population. Not, it's, not great for, it's not great for your numbers. It's not great for a number of reasons, but I mean, yeah, just from yeah. a financial perspective, you don't alienate, you know. An eighth uh, of your possible guests. So again, yeah, yeah. Dick retires in May of 1999. And at this point, Disney puts together a spreadsheet that shows, okay, this is what it's going to cost to rename and rebrand Dixie Landings versus this is how much profit this Disney World Resort would make if it were able to book every single on-site room every day of the year. Because that was the thing that was kind of making Disney crazy is that here was a moderate. And, you know, the Caribbean Beach Resort would sell out every night. And Port Orleans side would sell out every night. And there was this weird, persistent softness when it came to Alligator Bayou and Magnolia Bend that you know, they could never quite seal the deal. They could never get to 100%. Yeah, you know, it's, I'd say it's not my favorite resort mm-hmm. for the antebellum theming. Like, yeah. it's the same reason why I, I don't think there should be statues of Robert E. Lee. He committed treason. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. But what they did is they paid particularly close attention to occupancy levels at Dixie Landings during the Millennium Celebration, which ran from October 1st, 1999 through January 1st, uh, 2001. 15-month-long celebration. The resort did really, really well. But again, same thing. Noticeable softness at Dixie Landings. They rarely, if ever, totally sold out all 2,048 mm-hmm. rooms. This is why, February of 2001, Disney officially greenlights the Dixie Landings renaming rebranding project. Starting in March of that year, they began changing the signage around this 320-acre parcel. They also began walking out the idea that Puerto Rins and Dixie Landings would now be this one large regionally-themed resort. They would leave out conveniently which region it was themed around. It's like, it's it's regionally-themed. Just don't ask which region. The the Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) There we go. All right, so now it's a 3,056-room resort. April 1st, 2001. Southern half of, of Port Orleans Resort now becomes known as the French Quarter. Northern half becomes known as Riverside. The poor staffers at Central Reservation at this point, you know, they're literally taken in for shock training to the effect of, you know, every time you, you said Dixie Landings, they gave you a shock. It's like, no, 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 no. It's, <laughs> it's French Quarter and Riverside. You know, we don't say the Dixie Landings word anymore. And, you know, the sad part of the story, though, Len, is they are barely six months into this branding renaming right. effort. When 9-11 happens. And yep. now people are terrified to get on planes. So demand for rooms on property falls through the floor. July, November of that same year, French Quarter completely closes down. Riverside operation, which again, still has 2,048 rooms available for booking, 
mothballs 1700 yeah of those this, yeah yeah so during this uh, during this closure this was the first on-site research project i ever did at a disney resort for the unofficial guide you mentioned that yeah 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 so bob is and i are staying over at old key west mm-hmm. and we have bicycles you know mm-hmm. to sort of get around all the different resorts because they're mm-hmm. they're huge and stuff so he's like well go check out French Quarter to see how they're refurbishing the rooms. Because if I recall correctly, when they close the resort, they use that time to refurbish the rooms as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is it, it was a, a soft goods redo. Yeah, soft goods, yeah. 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 So but anyway, so, continue. So Bob says, you know, go over there and and see if you can go see the room. So, I, you know, I do a sort of like a casual sort of bike around the resort. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, they, they put up these huge garden planters. I mean, you know four feet tall with trees mm. that go up another 12 feet and they're mm-hmm. they they span the entire walkway i mean they're they got to be like four feet deep and 16 feet tall and they're you know 20 feet wide just massive things that you you have to move with like a forklift or a crane mm. or something mm-hmm. so i go back to bob and i'm like yeah you know they've got they've got these planters on the walkway so that you know you, you can't walk on the walkway and he paused for a second and he said can you walk around them <laughs> Right. Like don't, you know, don't, you know, if there's a fence, don't hop the fence. Right. Mm-hmm. But if there's a walkway, yeah. you know, so, so I did. And that was, um, I got to see the, the, uh, the, the new refurbishments. And I think we put it in that year's guide because I mm-hmm. think we were doing research in the spring for spring of 2002 for, you know, for the summer of 2002. And that's, uh, that's how we did it. And that's, uh, that was my introduction to, is there a fence or is there not a fence sort of philosophy for the, the unofficial guide? Yeah, Len, there was a time that, you know, I also interpreted the phrase cast members only is with the exception of Jim Hill. <laughs> Certainly they don't, they don't mean me in that. And I will say, you know, when I was younger, our Disney PR person got more than one phone call from Disney security saying, who is this guy and why is he traipsing around, you yeah. know, property. All right. And, 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 and thankfully they, you know, they all understood, you know, it's stuff to do so. Absolutely. And more to the point, that's all of the distant past, folks. Len and I yeah, behave ourselves these days. It's, it's completely different these days. Yeah. They, yeah. There we go. Okay. So it, it's interesting you bring up the Portal Lanes redo because demand remains soft, not only into 2002, but also to 2003. So. Oh, yeah. It was really 2000, like 2005. Oh, yeah. Because they, so they shut down the entire French Quarter section again in May of 2003, and it stayed shuttered till to March of 2004. Though, again, they used that time to renovate and refresh all 1,008 rooms on this side of the resort. Oh, that's right. This was the, uh, so the period 2000, late 2001 to like 2005-ish was the period of like, we're just going to refurbish entire resorts at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I remember, what was it? Was it Caribbean Beach? Oh, yes, yes. We had the redos. That followed after French Quarter reopened, then the Southern Team Mansions and Magnolia Bend shuttered for six months for same sort of yeah. renovation refresh. But and thousands of thousands of rooms at the time. Thousands right? of rooms. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. By May of two thousand five, we're now at the start of the happiest homecoming on earth. That that eighteen month long celebration of the creation of the Disney theme park. So enough demand for on property rooms that Disney no longer has to play with this shell game of on site capacity. The very next time that we see redos over at, you know, Port Orleans, French Quarter, and Riverside is the year after Princess the Frog come out. Princess the Frog comes in theaters December of 2009. November of 2010, 
This is when the Imagineers begin refreshing rooms so they in- include little nods to Tiana, Naveen, Lewis, and Ray. In French Quarter. In the French Quarter. Because there were, there were princess rooms in Riverside, right? Mm. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. This was part of a whole program. You know, you, you just talked about Caribbean Beach. You know, remember how they did first the Nemo-themed rooms and then they did the pirate-themed rooms. And, yeah, and in fact, yeah. isn't Poly, uh, Polynesian Village... Is part of its redo going to be doing some Moana-themed rooms? or Yeah, the uh, cash part of the poly, I believe, is doing a Moana refaming. And I believe they're doing a hard goods ref- refurbishment because mm-hmm. if you go to um, Cast Connection, the cast member store mm-hmm. in Walt Disney World, there's a ton of Polynesian room furniture available now. So I think they're, I think they're doing hard goods there as well. Yeah, I think Derek Bergen was just mentioning that he scored a lamp. So, you know, from the poly. <laughs> oh, did he? Okay. Which I'm, I'm sure he paid for. I was looking at desks. All right, yeah. But it's now, with these little touches from Princess and the Frog, where suddenly, for the African-American community, especially the Port Orleans French Quarter, suddenly becomes not necessarily the top resort for them, but it's in the top five. Really? Yeah, you know, that it's just sort of like, Ooh, my daughter and I you know, went to the resort and we discovered these little princes and the frog touches in the room. We loved it and we want to go back. According to folks I've spoken with Imagineering, as part of the decision about whether or not to redo Splash Mountain to a princess and the frog-based theming, they actually pulled the research from not only guest comments at Port Orleans, French Quarter, but also what they were hearing from the Central Reservation Office, the folks that said, I want to go back there because my daughter loves Princess and the Frog, and that resort has Princess and the Frog stuff. Oh, fantastic. Which brings us to what Josh DeMauro, in his speech just last week uh, at the Attractions Expo at Iapa, he talked about how the Splash Mountain transformation into a Princess and the Frog-themed ride is now being expedited. This is the exact quote, Len, from November uh, 16th. The cultural change of the company has already begun. The company has begun deepening its relationship with historically black colleges and universities to create a stronger pipeline to careers in finance, human resources, legal, communications, production, and technology. So that's interesting because uh, I, I knew about this because two people contacted me when Disney announced this. Mm-hmm. One of them was someone in Disney who knew that I went to an historically black college, North Carolina mm-hmm. A&T State University. The mm-hmm. other one was an alumnus of mine at North Carolina A&T State University mm-hmm. who said, hey, we're doing something with Disney in finance. Did you know about this? And I was like, <laughs> no, I didn't. But yeah, so yeah. yeah. So I think it's uh, A&T, Howard. There we go. Yeah. Florida A&M, the mm-hmm. world's greatest marching band. And there's one more, and I can't remember what it is. It's a very specific targeted effort with the idea of, again, those very specific programs about human resources and financing and the like. Hampton is the other one. There we go. Was, okay. okay. Yeah, so they, it, Josh goes on to say, we believe that truly inclusive environments are critical to fostering ideas from all people to help us grow, innovate, and create the best stories possible. More information about Disney's backstage commitment to inclusivity will be rolled out in the next few months. But a guest facing changes like the reimagining of Splash Mountain have been expedited to ensure that all who visit the company's parks do feel welcome as well. Okay, so when we say expedited, what do we mean? We're not, uh, we're not talking 2021, right? So let's start right off the bat by mentioning that you know when we're talking about the Splash Mountain redo 
we're not talking about Disneyland right now because it's like how yeah. how can you it's not even open? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, right now it seems like the earliest the park is going to open is spring of next year. On the other hand, Walt Disney World that's supposedly the first Splash Mountain to be reimagined. Toward the end of 2022, as the resort is nearing the end of its year-long 50th anniversary celebration, they'll announce at that time that Splash Round at the Magic Kingdom will be closing in 2023 for its Princess and the Frog-themed reimagining, which will take at least a year to do, Len. I've, I've also heard as, as long as 18 months. That's okay. So I, I was on a mm-hmm. uh, I was on Splash Mountain a couple weeks ago. Yep. And I think I've said before on the show, Splash Mountain is my favorite Walt Disney World ride. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's very long. It's got a catchy song. It's mm-hmm. got you know great show sets. Uh, they finally fixed the uh, jumping water mm-hmm. scene in uh, in the Laughing Place, which had been periodically broken or more mm-hmm. broken than not mm-hmm. since uh, since the park reopened. But you know, going through it, I'm like, you know, this is a great ride. But I I specifically rode an extra time, one more time, just mm-hmm. to go through it and say, okay, if if they redo this as Princess and the Frog, mm-hmm. what would I miss? Mm-hmm. And I got to the end of it, you know, I went through all the show scenes, I got to the end of it, I'm like, you know what, I, I, I'm i okay with it now. I've, mm-hmm. I love the current ride, mm-hmm. it will always have a cherished part in my memory, mm-hmm. but if they did something completely new with this, I'm, you know, I'm ready for it now. So, I'm fine with it. Okay. You know, well, that, I'm looking that, forward to it. That's great to hear because the, the the weird thing is, at least when it comes to Orlando, there is kind of yeah. two schools of thought about what they should do here. <laughs> Sell everything off as, as pins. <laughs> well, okay. You know, it, it, you honestly, know what's going to happen. That is one of the considerations involved here, Len, that they want a wall of commemorative merch. If you remember the stuff that was done for the close of the great movie ride, the, the t-shirts, yeah. the mugs, that sort of thing. That's just a tenth of what they're planning for Splash Mountain. Oh, yeah. I mean, it'll be tons of stuff. Now, the timeline was explained to me is that, you know, for example, they announce in, say, October of 2022, and there's one plan where, you know, they allow guests through the holiday season and they shutter in early January. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another version where it's like, well, we really need to give people more time than that. So the notion is they announce in October and keep the the ride open till April of 2023. So there's a full six month span for people to get in there. Doesn't doesn't it normally do a refurbishment early in the year, like after the January crowds leave? So they would they would just defer that and be like, we're going to close it anyway, let it run for a few more months. I was just looking at the refurbishment schedule for Universal Florida, and in the January March time frame. They shutter Jurassic River Ride. They shutter. Yeah, uh, it's cool. Uh, rips no off river rides. Yeah, even uh, bilge ride barges. So no, you're right. But at the same time, you know the fact that it's cold. Also, it, it's a perfect time to, you know, the mechanics that power a water ride, and you know all all of the hard stuff, so to speak. And another thing that I, I did hear from a friend of the show at Imagineering, uh, you know, to the effect of the Oriental Land Company has actually finally come around to this idea as well. They will entertain the idea that Tokyo Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain could be redone. Because, face it, there's some great Mm -hmm. commonalities between the Walt Disney World version of Splash and the Tokyo version of Splash. But the Oriental Land Companies have flat out told Disney, it's like, A, we want to see the finished product at Walt Disney World before we commit. And B, we want to see what the merch sales are for the Princess and the Frog stuff (laughs) in the post show. That's where things stand as of today, and I apologize that we can't 
you know, I don't have much of anything to share about the, the Disneyland timetable, but again, it's hard yeah, to talk about until that park reopens. So yeah, yeah, we just don't know. Yep. Fantastic. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new in-park audio in that special series on Epcot storytelling. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. On next week's show, we start on Disney-related Christmas stories. And we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be singing Storms and I Don't Want to Know, which have never been performed live. And he's open to a duet of Landslide if Billy Corgan shows up at Tusk, a tribute to Fleetwood Mac. One night only, 7 p.m. on Friday, December 18th at the Count Basie Center for the Arts in beautiful downtown Red Bank, New Jersey. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.